still recovering from our Christmas party last night. Um, thank you again to BJ and Marty Hall for hosting. Did, uh, did you find any white elephant gifts left behind? Yeah. See, this ain't my first rodeo. This morning's passage is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 61 to 62. Thanks to Joe for setting us up well last week on uh, our journey through this third part of the prophet Isaiah as we, through the season of Advent, prepare for Christmas. We, probably most of us, if it's not from the song that Matthew uh, led us in, uh, we often know this passage in Isaiah, the beginning of Isaiah 61, from the story that we find in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel, after Luke has gotten uh, the whole business of Jesus' birth and uh, childhood out of the way, and after he's talked about John the Baptist preparing a way in the wilderness, giving us the genealogy of Jesus, uh, and of course, uh, giving us the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Luke says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So Jesus, this young rabbi, is going through the synagogues of Galilee, going to uh, his people, the Jewish people, in the power of the Spirit. And we know from the other Gospels that among the things he was doing in addition to teaching in their synagogues, were what? What else was he doing? He was performing miracles. He was healing people. He was restoring sight to the blind. He was doing some very impressive things. And so the word spread about him throughout the whole countryside. So then he goes back to Nazareth, his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it, which incidentally would have taken quite a while, because Isaiah has 66 chapters, and this is chapter 61. Every time, you know, Jesus is a human being, right? Very important we remember Jesus is God, Jesus is human. Jesus had to do the things that Jesus, that that human beings do. I guess he could have, like, applied magic Jesus powers to scroll it ahead real quick so he didn't have to, but the, the Lord and Savior stood there and unrolled a scroll for quite a while, got to chapter 61. He found a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he then rolled up the scroll. So he says these words, and everybody's sitting there letting them sink in as he's rolling the thing back up. And he gives it to the attendant and sits down. Luke tells us the eyes of everyone in that synagogue were locked on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They said, isn't this 
the kid who grew up learning to be a general contractor with Joseph, they were amazed. They all spoke well of him. This is good news, right? This is welcome. Why, why would this be such welcome news? If you're blind, it's welcome news to be told that you're going to have your sight restored. If you're in prison, it's welcome news to hear that you're going to be free. If you're oppressed, it's welcome news to know that you are going to be released. If you're poor, it's welcome news to know that you're getting any good news. Why would they be so appreciative of this? Well, it's not just for those general reasons. It's because for them in Nazareth, they were suffering many of these problems. Nazareth was the heart of Jewish Galilee. And Jewish Galilee was under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Had been for some time. In fact, the Jewish people had been under somebody's thumb for centuries by that point. Isaiah is preaching to a nation that had in 722 had the northern part of the kingdom hauled off to Assyria. In 586, the southern part to Babylon. He's probably at, at this point in, uh, in the book of Isaiah, we're dealing with prophecy that came after the exile, after people started to return from the exile, so late 6th century. But these are people that have been dealing with oppression, with foreign domination for years. Whether it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, Greeks, now Rome, the people are, in a sense, imprisoned. They are oppressed. And thanks to the oppressive taxation of the Roman Empire, they certainly were dealing with poverty as well. So this was welcome news for Jesus to read this passage. And all the more so when you read what is around it in Isaiah chapter 61 and 62. Let's read this the way Isaiah gives it to us. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners or the blind, depending on how you translate that. To proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. See, Jesus didn't mention that last line, did he? He stopped at to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But Isaiah goes on, and certainly the people hearing Jesus in the synagogue would have known that Isaiah goes on to say, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of Yahweh for the display of his splendor. This is, after all, what God had created his people to be, wasn't it? 
a living billboard for the goodness of the one true Lord of the universe. They're supposed to represent him, to demonstrate how good it is when a people live as God's people, when they live by his law, when they have his favor, his protection. And here, God says through Isaiah to a people that have thrown all of that away, who have by their disobedience suffered exile and now a shadow of a restoration to the land that once was theirs entirely. He's saying, no, there is a future for you. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. That's foreigners, not like the UFO aliens. They will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. Why would it be welcome news to hear that foreigners are going to shepherd your flocks and work your fields and vineyards? Why? What's that? Well, you'll get the profit. That's good. And why else, Steve? Well, they're going to be working for you. If they're not slaves, they're going to be, you know, your employees. Because, and why would that be welcome news to you now? Because you're the ones who are in that position. You're working for somebody else. The man is keeping you down. You get to be the man. That's what he's saying. And you will be called priests of Yahweh. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. And in their riches, you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. Who gets a double portion? The firstborn. The firstborn child gets a double portion. The most honored of the nations is Israel. They will receive, instead of shame, a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land. Where they're supposed to be, where God said he was going to put them, an everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery. I hate iniquity. But in my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations, and their offspring among the peoples. Israel will have the kind of reputation that it should have among the nations of the world, because all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people Yahweh has blessed. I delight greatly in Yahweh. My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me, Isaiah says, with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seed to grow, so the Lord Yahweh will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. And that's Isaiah saying it, and scholars disagree on whether that's Isaiah the prophet saying that he has been clothed with garments of salvation by God, or whether it's his community saying this, or whether he is speaking now in the voice of the Deliverer, the Messiah, the Savior, perhaps the suffering servant that we heard from earlier in Isaiah. Chapter 62, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You'll be called by a new name that the mouth of Yahweh 
will bestow. You'll be a crown of splendor in Yahweh's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her, and your land Beulah, which means married. For Yahweh will take delight in you. Your land will be married as a young man marries a maiden, so will your Sons, or your builder marry you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. This is not simply a contractual arrangement. This is not just most favored nation status. This is an intimate relationship between God and his people. I posted a watchman on your walls, Jerusalem. They'll never be silent day or night. You who call on Yahweh, give yourselves no rest. Give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Yahweh has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies. Never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise Yahweh. Those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through. Pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. Yahweh has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your Savior comes. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people the redeemed of Yahweh, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. What welcome news this would have been to the ears of these bedraggled exiles coming back from Babylon to the land. What welcome news this would have been to the ears hundreds of years later of the people at the synagogue in Nazareth where Jesus spoke these words. Their expectation was that God would make all of this work out. This was not just fancy, high-sounding language. This was not a pep talk. This was God's promise about what He was going to do. And as we have talked about before, this is the kind of peace that is achieved by dealing with the obstacles to peace. What's one of the major obstacles to peace? We don't have the kids here, so somebody will have to pretend they're Kara. What's one of the major obstacles to peace? War, yes. Sin, yes. Jerks. Remember? Jerks. One reason you don't have peace is that they're jerks who don't want peace. They have, they have no pleasure at all in there being peace. They want to make things difficult. God is finally going to sort these people out. If you read on in chapter 63, and I I got uh, Ron's permission to encroach a little bit on his text from next week. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength, that his eye speaking in righteousness, mighty to save? Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. 
For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my arm, my own arm worked salvation for me. My own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured out their blood on the ground. In chapter 59, before our passage, we read that Yahweh looked and was displeased that there was no justice. In verse 15, he saw there was no one. Again, the same phrase. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. There seems to be this idea that God expects the nations. And you get this throughout the prophets. This idea that, that nations are expected to, to be just. Nations are expected to behave themselves in a way that fits with justice and mercy. And when they don't, when they fail in their responsibilities, God is appalled because there was no one to intervene. His own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they've done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies. Retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. And the islands, of course, would have been those lands to the west. From the west, men will fear the name of Yahweh. From the rising of the sun, that's in the east, they will revere his glory, for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of Yahweh drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares Yahweh. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit who is in you, my words that I put in your mouth, will not depart from your mouth, or from the mouths of your children, or from the mouths of their descendants, from this time on and forever, says Yahweh. This is the full story we read of what God is about in this section of Isaiah. Which is why it is so surprising what Jesus says next. We continue the story in Luke 4. After all spoke well of him and are amazed at his gracious words, Jesus, as usual, doesn't rest on his laurels. He then proceeds to piss everybody off. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal thyself. Why don't you do here in your hometown what we heard you did over in Capernaum? I'll tell you the truth. He continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel back in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, was he? Rather, he was sent to a widow in Zarephath, the region of Sidon. It's outside of the boundaries of the land. That's a foreigner. That's somebody about 40 miles to the northwest. And there were many in Israel with leprosy back in the time of Elisha the prophet, weren't there? Yet not one of them was cleansed. The only one was Naaman the Syrian. Again, also not one of the Jewish people. Well, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. 
They got up, they drove him out of the town, they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. These words were not so welcome. And the reason they were not so welcome is that Jesus' agenda is broader than simply the fortunes of the nation of Israel. As important as that is and as true as it is that those are in many ways primary on the agenda, his agenda is bigger than that. Again, if we push ourselves out even earlier in this last part of Isaiah, chapter 56, this is what Yahweh says, Maintain justice, do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner, nobody from outside the people of Israel, let no foreigner who has bound himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what Yahweh says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name even better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will not, like other things, be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to Yahweh to serve him, to love the name of Yahweh, and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast, to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Who gets to come inside the house of prayer? Who comes inside the temple? Who's allowed in? Only priests. And he's saying he's going to invite foreigners in. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. My house will be called a house of prayer. For all nations. Lord Yahweh declares, He who gathers all the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them beside those already gathered. And then at the very end of Isaiah, we read in chapter 66, verse 18, And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, I'm about to come and gather all nations and tongues. And they will come and see my glory. I'll set a sign among them. I'll send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, who are famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, to all the distant islands that haven't heard of my fame or seen my glory. I'm sending out missionaries to proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to Yahweh on horses and chariots and wagons, on mules and camels, says Yahweh, they'll bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of Yahweh in ceremonially clean vessels. And I, get this, I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says Yahweh. 
Jesus' agenda is broader than simply the fortunes of the nation of Israel because God's is. And we find in the reaction of the people outrage that God is concerned with anything beyond them. It's not the first time, it won't be the last, that God surprises his people with the wideness of his mercy. I think the first axiom of theology, the first rule that we have to follow when we try to understand God, is that we don't God, tell God what he can and can't do. The minute you decide what God can and can't do, what he can and can't be like, you have placed yourself your own conscience, your own sense of right and wrong on the throne of God, you will end up with a God that looks a lot like you on a good day. You can't tell God what he can and can't do. But the second thing that comes right with that is that we do pay attention to what he has done, to what he has said. When I was out of town, I had the opportunity to worship in a number of different settings. One of them was the church that I grew up in, a very liberal mainline church up in New England. Different people have different customs in some churches. When the scripture is read, the person will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord. In this church, they conclude their scripture readings with, God is still speaking. And whenever I hear that, and when I know the positions that this particular denomination has taken, my thought is always, he's still speaking because you weren't listening to him before. Yes, he's still speaking, but he has spoken. And if he has said some things, and he has spoken them, and he has done them, then it is incumbent on us when we try to understand who God is and what he does and what his purposes are. It is incumbent on, upon us to pay attention to that. Nowhere is this more true, nowhere is this more important than when we consider what the theologians call the Christ event, the decisive move in human history of God taking on flesh, dwelling among us as one of us, taking our sins upon himself, dying an atoning death for our salvation, and then rising again as a vindication of everything that he said he was. Jesus is not optional. We respond to him or we don't. But I don't think God wants to give us the option of voting present, of taking a pass. Jesus is Messiah or he isn't. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him or it wasn't. So as we go through this Advent season, I think we have to bear in mind that we are, when we do this, 
recapitulating this anticipation of decisive deliverance by God. Jesus is not simply one of many attractive religious options. I don't think he gives us that choice. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word that you have revealed to us. We thank you for your son that you have given to us. We thank you for your victory that you have won for us. And we pray that we would, in all of our engagement with you, that we would approach you with proper humility, not telling you what you can and can't do, and not ignoring the things that you have done, that you have said to us. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.